Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. This Shabbat, we are very blessed, even in the midst of some inclement weather, to have someone who I'm proud to call a teacher and even more proud to call a friend in our midst, and that is Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. Dr. Kurtzer is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Dr. Kurtzer earned his PhD in Jewish studies from Harvard University and a Master of Arts in Religion from Brown and is also a graduate of Columbia University. He's an alumnus of both the Wexner Graduate and Brockman Youth Fellowship programs. Yehuda is the author of a fantastic book which is titled Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past. It's a work of constructive theology that offers new thinking on how contemporary Jews could and should relate to our past while living profoundly in the present. As a fellow in the Institute's I Engage project at the Shalom Hartman Center, Yehuda writes and teaches widely on the central challenges facing Jewish life in both America and Israel, and how new, think, new Jewish thinking can help us stand up to all of these challenges. Yehuda previously served on the faculty of Brandeis University as the inaugural chair of the Jewish Communal Innovation Program, and he currently lives in Riverdale, New York with his wife Stephanie and their three children. I will tell you on a personal note that uh, I've had the blessing of knowing Yehuda since I started my fellowship at Hartman a few years ago. I've since completed that fellowship, but thankfully I haven't completed my study and learning with and learning from Yehuda. And for me, someone who has tried to bite on to the meat of the sociological challenges that the Jewish world faces and the chasm that exists between the Jewish world and Israel, the Jewish world and the diaspora, and the bridges that can be built between them, there have been few that I have ever learned from that can so articulately and succinctly sum up the challenges, the obstacles, and also the opportunities as well as Dr. Kurtzer. Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic summed up what many of us think on this process, and he said, there are few people in the world who are talking about in such a creative, innovative, and thoughtful way the challenges of what is really pressing the Jewish world as well as Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. And it's his work and these questions that he has brought to the world of Hillel's at universities, that he's brought to the world of interested Jewish thinkers, that he's brought to the world of those who are committed to a Jewish-Israel relationship, and those who are enriching their careers as rabbis and educators. Few have done it as well as Dr. Kurtzer. And it is really our honor, the Shabbat, to introduce my teacher and my friend, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. Before he comes to the Bima, I just want to pause for one moment and give special thanks and gratitude to Drs. Mark and Eva Horn who through their vision and through their insight knew that our synagogue continues to grow from different people who come to our shul and enrich it and help especially the future of our synagogue grapple with these very ideas that Dr. Kurtzer does. So it's your beneficence that makes this week and so many other weeks in our past happen and we are indebted to you and grateful to you. And I think you will see the fruits of your commitment in just a few seconds as Dr. Kurtzer teaches with us today. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kurtzer to the Bima. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, thank you all of you for uh, such a 
warm and welcome introduction this Shabbat uh, to me and my family who are here. Um, no thanks to the weather for the warmth, um, but thank you, Rabbi Kirshner, for those very kind words. And let me also just thank Ben and Holden for the opportunity to crash your bar mitzvahs today. Um, for the past 10 minutes, I've been trying to work on any football analogies or tie-ins. I don't have anything. I'll just say um, mazel tov and welcome to the big leagues. I want to talk uh, this Shabbat, um, speaking a few times, speaking about the Jewish future and what it means to be 21st century Jews uh, from a tradition that, um, that has thought a lot about its past. And, to, and as a result, what I want to do today is th th this morning is to do something a little strange, which is to talk about our Jewish future in reference to our past, or specifically this big problem, this big challenge that we have as Jews of how do we look forward while being conscious constantly that a lot of our great history is behind us and aware of this kind of burden, sometimes feels like a gorilla that sits on our back, of what we take from the past as we look to the future. We read magnificently this story this morning about the Jewish people stepping out from a known world, even a broken world, right? The world of slavery in Egypt and stepping out into the profound uncertainty of the desert in, in pursuit of a new future and ultimately towards a promised land. And as we know from many of our stories about the Exodus and from our Passover Seder, there's a constant anxiety about what we took from Egypt when we left and what we didn't manage to take with us as we went on to this journey. Of course, the biggest metaphor of that is we couldn't wait long enough even for the bread to rise. We rushed out in a hurry and only took what we could. And so one of the dominant stories throughout the Exodus story is we're going in the pursuit of, the better, of a better future, and it's not totally clear what we take with us as actual tangible physical items from our past, but more, more significantly, metaphorically, what we carry with us from our past as we pursue this future. I'll come back to that in a moment, and I want to give a central metaphor from this week's Torah reading to help us unpack this. But I'm also interested in this from the perspective of Jewish communal policy and so much anxiety that exists right now among Jewish leaders in envisioning the Jewish future that hinges precisely on our ability to articulate some answers to this question. And I'll present through to the following problem. It, it, it somehow managed to be the case that it's very difficult to be a person in the Jewish world today, a Jewish leader in particular, who can be thinking about the Jewish past, the Jewish present, and the Jewish future all at the same time. It's very difficult. I'll give you an example from last night, from something I said here in shul that we carried over to, uh, to the Shabbat table at the Kirshner home. If you say the phrase, something to the effect of, it's never been better at any time in Jewish history to be a Jew alive in the world than it is today in 2016 in America which is a kind of present-day orientation that takes stock of Jewish power and privilege and opportunity that's come with the experience of Jews feeling safe and secure in not the original promised land, but perhaps a different promised land. That very statement about the power of the Jewish present and the possibility that that creates for the Jewish future almost always invites the following reaction. Didn't Jews in 1930 in Germany think that about themselves? Didn't Jews in 1491 in Spain think that they were living in a golden age? In other words, 
trying to speak articulately about the Jewish present and the Jewish future invites an anxiety that you're leaving behind the Jewish past. If I want to talk about the future, I must be forgetting my past and therefore doing something deeply disloyal to something that I'm supposed to hold onto from the past. And the reverse is also true. We all know Jewish leaders and rabbis and individuals who are so obsessed with the past that it feels like their heads are in the sand. They're so obsessed with our best days being behind us that all they do is create anxiety about the Jewish present and Jewish future, which doesn't allow us to take full stock of the gifts and opportunities that are at our disposal and becomes a forfeiture of all of this power and privilege that we have. In other words, we're living through this period of tremendous change and struggling with this question of what it means to be a people who has a past, a people who has a different present, and a people who has a different future. We know this also in just how Jews behave. There's a whole growing community of Jews in Israel and America and around the world who crave the safety and security of the past. How else do you explain the rise of Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox Judaism as a response to modernity who see that the best way to be a modern Jew is to try to act and dress and think like a 19th century Jew. That was safer, it was more secure. We knew who we were, we knew the difference between us and them, and so the best way for us to be people in the present is to essentially be people in the past, of the past. And then there are most of the Jews in the world who are leaving behind the Jewish past very radically all the time in pursuit of the opportunity to live as members of this free society and who want to envision a future for Jewish life that leaves all of these frameworks and models of the past behind. And we, those of us who are showing up to shul, who are not ultra-Orthodox Jews, but who are in pursuit of some sensibility of wanting to stay people of the presence in the future, but with some sense of loyalty to the past, are caught in between these poles, the pole of longing for a past that feels sometimes secure, and the, that, and the pole of longing for a future that feels radically different. We know, even as we encounter this tension, that the central mechanism of Jewish continuity and innovation has been in our ability to constantly modify what we do in the present and future in reference to our past. This is the amazing phenomenon of all of your Pesach seders. All of us do this Passover seder once a year where we pretend as though we are leaving Egypt. But you know what's so interesting about the Pesach seder? At no point in the Haggadah, in the recounting of the Passover story, do you actually tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt. If you did that, it wouldn't take so long. You would read from Exodus chapter 11 through Exodus chapter 14. You would describe what happened then, and then you'd be done, and you would be able to placate the uncle who just wants to get to the soup. Um, everybody's got an uncle like that. Um, frustrated with all the conversation. We don't actually tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt. What we do is we tell a modified version of the Exodus from Egypt mediated through how other people told that story. The Haggadah is actually a game, an elaborate recording of a game of broken telephone how many people throughout history recounted this story before in order for us to feel invited into the process 
of retelling a story that we didn't know and that didn't happen to us, but that feels relevant and powerful and politically important. It doesn't matter at the Passover Seder whether you actually tell the story of the historical exodus. What matters is if you find a way to frame your own life experiences, the political challenges of Jews today, through a frame of reference that comes from the Jewish past. That's what we try to do. And what makes the Pesach Seder, the Passover story, so powerful as we, as we read through it in the Torah is not that we're still remembering something that happened to our ancestors 3,000, 5,000 years ago. The reason that story is so resonant is because we have found that language to be a useful metaphor for our own challenges that we live through today. This is that secret of Jewish continuity, the ability to see dramatically into the future in reference to the frames and modules of the Jewish past. And yet, as I said at the outset, the tensions between future thinking and past thinking are crippling our community. And it's not always clear that we have access to that same secret sauce, the relationship between past and present that's been so critical to Jewish identity over the past several thousand years, and we're, we're forced to ask, what will it take on our part to rehabilitate that sensibility? To look at this, I want to look at one short little piece in the Parsha that, thankfully, the three people so far who have spoken about today didn't fully dig into detail about, although um, I think one of the Bar Mitzvah boys made reference to it. But it's a minor thing that takes place right at the beginning of the Torah reading, in passing. It's just one verse, but it's, like many verses in the Torah, incredibly loaded. What's actually taking place in this verse opens up to many different interpretations. It's verse 19 right at the beginning. They've left, the Israelites have just left Egypt and they're beginning their sojourn into the desert which will take 40 years. And it says in verse 19, and Moses took with him the bones of Joseph who had, an ex who had exacted an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will be sure to take notice of you then you shall carry up my bones from here with you. And then the verses go on. In other words, when we ask the question of what did the Israelites carry with them, what did they take with them, we mean tangibly the stuff that they packed up and took, the, the minimal belongings from their own house. We mean psychologically all of the baggage of 250 years of slavery in Egypt. And we also mean very technically they took one thing, which was a trunk carrying the bones of their forefather, ancestor Joseph, who had been responsible for the Israelites coming down to Egypt to begin with, and who had made his brothers and his father promise on his deathbed that when they eventually leave, they're going to take me with you and bury me, with, bury me where I want to be buried uh, in my father's graves back in the land of Israel. I see at least four suggestive meanings for what is it that the Israelites are doing in carrying Joseph's bones out of Egypt. But it's not just about Joseph's bones. It's about this larger question of what do we carry with us? What's the baggage we take with us from our past as we proceed into an uncertain future? I see at least four meanings. One is, the Israelites are carrying away Joseph's bones because they're desperate to leave this place. They feel a deep sense of urgency. We're running away and nobody gets left behind. 
right? We see ourselves leaving Egypt and don't want to leave behind, as is like the great mottos of both the American army and the Israeli army, you don't leave anybody behind you in the field because you don't know what they're going to do to you. I see myself in radical rupture and disruption from the past that I'm leaving, and I want to make sure that the stuff I take with me is intact. This is a double-edged idea, because it means that on one hand, I'm being protective of my own. On the other hand, I'm actually creating discontinuity to, the, to what was there before. I don't want any of my stuff to get left behind in Egypt, because we're moving on to a new reality. A second interpretation of why we carry Joseph's bones with us is that we're repaying a debt to our past and a promise that we made to our ancestors. Joseph literally makes his family promise, don't forget me. And when we carry his bones, we're saying, don't worry, we didn't forget you. This too is a double-edged sword. Because carrying around those bones because you're playing out a, a past promise can make you a little bit resentful at some point in the journey on how heavy it is. Am I only doing, am I only carrying the past because out of a sense of guilt of what my parents made me promise I wouldn't forget? Does that sometimes feel less like paying back a promise and more like a burden? A third carrying of the past. In Joshua, the book of Joshua chapter 24, Joshua makes the Israelites, after they've come into the land of Israel, re-promise and commit to all the aspects of the covenant. And once they say, yes, we'll do it, and here we are in the land of Israel, Joshua then finally buries Joseph's bones near the city of Shechem. And so in some ways, the bones also serve a political function. We're carrying this with us to hold ourselves accountable to the commitments that we made before and to stake our claim to the land of Israel. A third way in which we carry around the past is not because of a sense of guilt or shame and not because we're trying to run away from the past, but because trying to make a political claim about our own, our own authenticity in the present. This too is extremely loaded. <laughs> Right? The use of the past in order to make political claims on the present oftentimes can be divisive and polarizing and forces us into political stands that are complicated. And the fourth, perhaps the weakest argument, is they carry around Joseph's bones because they are the Jewish people's good luck charm. Right? Like an amulet, like something you wear around your neck. We are the people who have this little symbol of Joseph's bones which is nice and cute, but ultimately doesn't have the power of carrying around the past that should actually impact us. I want to suggest today that some of the tensions or the anxieties that we have as a Jewish people right now about how much we take seriously of our past and how much we use of that past in carrying into the future is actually a lot of these same stories, but perhaps not fully interrogated not fully explored of what is it that we think that we're doing when we carry on to our past, when we carry ourselves into the future. Let me go out slightly onto a ledge and suggest when it comes, for instance, to the stuff that we are carrying around as, or in my case, two, three generations after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, we're also carrying around a legacy and a memory that we're not sure what to do with. Jewish people right now 
are carrying around multiple interpretive meanings of the Holocaust. For some Jews, the message of the Holocaust, the moral message of the Holocaust is, we've learned from our history never to become victims again. And that animates Jewish politics. And it's a means by which we carry history with us and it shapes who we are. For other Jews, I'll put them on, and you hear this rising on the far left, the moral message of the Holocaust is that since this happened to us, we will never be perpetrators to anyone else. And it conditions Jewish politics because of an anxiety of that lesson. And a third, very different message that comes out of the Holocaust, which defines American Judaism, is that we will not be bystanders. It's not about being victims, it's not about being perpetrators, it's about being bystanders. In fact, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington is a museum to the idea of American intervention and the goal of saying we will never be bystanders when this happens to someone else. Now what's devastating is those three narratives can all be true. It can be true that when you carry around a heavy piece of history, you can learn three moral lessons from it. Much like when the Israelites are carrying Joseph's bones through the desert, they may be holding to all of these ideas, making a political claim, paying a debt to their ancestors, and trying to flee Egypt. But the instinct is, when the, none of these are fully interrogated, we use these lessons from the past as blunt instruments against each other. You're doing the claiming of history and memory wrong because you're making this argument as opposed to another argument. I guess I want to conclude, and Rabbi Kirshner knows this, I think I ask better questions than I provide answers. I want to conclude with a couple of brief ideas of what it will be like for us as a Jewish people to become much more explicit and much more conscious of people who are trying to hold on to something from our past. Not Joseph's bones, but the complicated stories of the 20th century as they've implicated and defined us as Jews in the 21st. Most of the struggles that we have inside the Jewish people are because we have different interpretations of the meaning of the Holocaust and different interpretations of the meaning of the state of Israel. That means we're in a sorting period right now when our people less than 100 years after these two defining events, as significant in Jewish history as the exodus from Egypt, when we are sorting out why and for what purpose are we carrying around the meaning and legacy of these particular stories. I guess my hope is that we do two things as a people. Number one, we become a little bit better about tolerating the possibility of multiple interpretations. The bigger idea about the legacy of our history for our future is not that it means just one thing, but that it means multiple possible things. We are a people and a community that can tolerate that multiplicity, and we become more strong, more powerful moral actors when we see all of the reasons for why the Israelites are carrying around Joseph's bones than when we force one particular interpretation. What would it be like for us as a people to be much more tolerant of multiple interpretations of the meaning of the Shoah and the State of Israel because it will help reinforce the significance of the past rather than rupturing it? But the second thing is not just the message of pluralism. The second big idea 
is the urgency of being really explicit of why we hold on to the past and what function it serves. You know, a lot of the reasons why young Jews tend to be skeptical of the stuff that they want their parents and grandparents to remember, or for, want they to, for them to remember, is because it's presented through a framework of guilt and because it's not named explicitly. Instead of saying, this happened to me, and therefore these are the choices I want you to make, we simply hope that our memories are transmitted from one generation to the next. And here's the sad reality about memories. Nobody will remember the things you remember. What a next generation might remember is if we can turn our memories into explicit lessons. Now that's scary, because a memory that happens to me when it gets turned into a specific lesson feels like I've reduced the memory from something complex and powerful into something very specific. But the truth is, that's what we do. The reason why it worked for the Jewish people to carry their memories throughout time was precisely because we named the moral, political, and otherwise lessons that we were taking from our past and translated those ideas into purposefulness. What I'm moved by, by this verse 19, is that the Israelites know exactly that they are supposed to stand there and hoist the bones of Joseph on their shoulders and carry them with them. They don't ask questions. They feel a debt to the past as they carry it forth into the present. The challenge I want to put on the table for us today is, as we live through this same moment of awkward transition from a people who knew its past to a people that's pursuing an un uncertain future, can we be similarly explicit with our children, with our grandchildren? This is what I expect you to take of me as you go forward, and then are we willing to get out of the way and let them follow their own visions into the promised land? Shabbat Shalom. I think uh, you all join me in saying Yesher Koach to Dr. Kurtzer, and I think you all understand now why I always mark my calendar with two moments. The moment that's a countdown until I go to Hartman Institute and how many days it was since I was a part of it. It's because I get the opportunity to learn with people like Yehuda, who as you saw today, is really uncanny, has a real gift for the Jewish people, and I think the future of the Jewish world, of summing up the challenges that we live in and what is seemingly a simple time, but indeed quite a complex time with all of these generations and narratives living together. And um, thank you for sharing that gift with us today. Usually, 